DHS's cyber office has an emergency. So how does that get fixed when the government's partially closed? If you've listened to this podcast, you're familiar with MageCart. But how are companies dealing with it when they've been infected? We talked to an expert. Malware on subways, exclusive CISO meetings, and another bad Elasticsearch leak. Welcome to another week of Securiosity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Securiosity for January 25th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel. A busy week for government cybersecurity, even in the throes of a shutdown. Can't think of anything worse than a superior saying, hey, uh, do you know all that work you've been doing for no pay? Well, now we have more. Things are looking so, so bleak. After we get through all of that bleakness, we talk to Jonathan Kleinsma from Risk IQ. Jonathan is the foremost expert on this mage cart malware we keep talking about, and we'll talk to him about what he is seeing and what enterprises are or are not doing to stop it. But first, that bleak world of news. The Department of Homeland Security released a rare emergency directive Tuesday requiring agencies to clamp down on security following a suspected Iranian hacking threat. At least six agencies have been affected by a domain name service tampering campaign, sources told CyberScoop. Despite the ongoing partial government shutdown, agencies have 10 business days to institute a slew of security controls, including multi-factor authentication. The fear is that hackers can manipulate DNS records dubbed the phone book of the internet to direct malicious traffic at government computers. Greg, how does this affect agencies who are dealing with the shutdown? Um, Like we kind of alluded to at the beginning there, there are some CISOs and some CIOs and probably some... HR people and just superiors across the board at agencies that have been shut down that are getting the phone call out to their networking people to come back in and get ready to fix this. I mean, this is a big deal. Um, It's rare to see an emergency directive go out. We've seen from DHS uh, in the past, like binding operational directives go out where that basically says, okay, this is the law of the land now, but you'll have like 90 days or six months to implement it. This is 10 business days. Like this is, that right there shows you uh, the gravity of what we're talking about here. Like this needs to be fixed and this needs to be fixed now. When's the last time we've seen this? Uh, I can't tell you. Since I've uh, been with CyberScoop, I don't think DHS has put out any sort of emergency directive, at least publicly. I mean, I'm sure there's been some phone calls that have been pretty informal. That's like, hey, go fix this now. But as far as like a, a directive that's been made public that has been of the emergency sort. Um, We've never seen anything like this. And I mean, this looks to be based off of some private research that has been done by FireEye and Cisco that has said that it looks to be uh, Iranian-linked that they're uh, trying to mess with DNS records. So God forbid, like, you know, something happens where you're getting DNS redirects or DNS hijacks where people think they're going to, I don't know, it's February, or we're approaching February, so DNS hijacks to irs.gov? I mean, people are doing their taxes, and, and they're trying to get information on irs.gov. I mean, that, that's a hypothetical. That, sure, that, that yeah. obviously isn't anything that uh, has been corroborated or even true or anything like that. But th- that's what we're talking about here. I mean, th- there are ways in which... DNS records could be hijacked and inside uh, federal agencies. And we have in our story that six agencies have been affected by uh, DNS traffic being hijacked. So it's not 
like just a due diligence or a like let's get out in front of this like no this is happening and this is happening at a, a, a very very bad point um, with in terms of how the government is working or not working right now and th- it needs to be fixed so I, I've actually talked to some DHS sources and I talked to them about the whole shutdown angle and they were like yeah you know what not ideal but at the same time we couldn't sit around and do nothing and sure. then everybody comes back whenever this ends and it, it's just absolute chaos everywhere when it comes to this so yes it, it, it's not a great look from the standpoint of yep we're, we're giving people more work to do that they're not going to get paid for but then again there's you know there's still the need to get this fixed and that outweighs what's going on internally with the wow shutdown. So an open, unsecured server containing 24 million records, including loan agreements and tax records, was traced to a company called Ascension, a data analytics company that caters to financial firms. An inspection by security researcher Bob Dianchenko and TechCrunch revealed that the server contained personally identifiable information dating back to 2008, belonging to customers of major banks and U.S. government agencies. Some of those organizations have said they don't have a current relationship with Ascension and that the loans in question were sold to other firms long ago. The server was secured as of January 15th, according to Diachenko and TechCrunch, although it's not clear how long it was openly accessible. Jen, we talked last week about Oklahoma mm-hmm. leaking case information from the FBI and PII on AIDS patients. Is this worse? I don't actually think it is. I think that um, putting things like information about each patients is a lot worse than um, financial information. And the reason I posed that question was I, I can see both sides of it. I mean, obviously, y- your medical information is always going to be a lot more sensitive. Well, and that specifically, I think, is is a lot more sensitive than than maybe normal right. uh, medical records. Right, but, I mean, we're talking financial information here like that that's that's everything like i don't want my when i am doing whether it's my mortgage anything else when it comes to that it's just one of these things again we keep talking about it we place trust in these enterprises to safeguard our information and we don't fully understand how third parties are coming in and leveraging that information let alone taking the protections that we need them to protect on top of this now this there wasn't any signs that this was manipulated or stolen or breached or anything like that but just poor security every time we talk about this moving to elastic search or an s3 bucket that doesn't have a password or it's stored with a a default password i i i mean we have one of these stories a week now we do i i feel like and it doesn't it's not resonating at, at at all and not that i necessarily am, am positioning us as like the beacon of of the way that infosec does this thing <laughs> all i'm saying is the fact that like this keeps happening again and again and again i begin to wonder if the flaws are with how these are defaultly set up because this this keeps happening over and over and over again that I'm wondering if there needs to be protections built in from the ground up that when you procure a cloud instance, it's like rock solid from the beginning. Because this type of stuff does not happen out of maliciousness. It happens out of ignorance. Just, oh, I didn't know I need to set it up that way. And that excuse shouldn't fly anymore, I feel like. 
there there needs to be more ingrained from it to almost take away the human element of it. But I don't think we're talking about things that were set up like in the last year or two. I think we're thinking about things that were set up previously. You know, certainly things have become more secure over time. Um, So really, I think it's a matter of corporations, enterprises needing the government, needing to go back into the way they've done stuff over the past 10 years and go back and fix it. But uh, do you think that I don't think that that's even a thought some of the times. No, oh, that server, that like yeah. I feel like a lot of the times these enterprises aren't even aware of where everything sits. I mean, I know that has happens with agencies, but we're talking government agencies. Like those are we're talking like yeah. tens of thousands, if not hundreds and thousands of employees. If you're talking that you are even if you even hit the thousand employee mark, I feel like you should automatically be looking at this stuff. And I, I don't think that that is the case at all. I just don't think security measures protecting data has just, I don't think it's been a thing up until a couple of years ago. I just don't think that made it up until like a board level discussion or even a C-suite discussion um, previously. I agree. I, I'm just surprised at the dearth of stories that have come out and the seemingly like lack of reaction to it because it's like, oh, wait. Yeah, we. Uh, I, I see this. This wow, S three buckets. This I I know. Well, we have a, a large quantity of stuff on an S three bucket. How about I just go back and, and just check it out? And I, I don't know if that's happening. I don't. I just think we're going to see more and more of these stories until the consequences for these types of breaches are are bigger. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I'm. <laughs> my, you know, my, I, my pleas are falling on deaf ears. I'm, I'm just not sure people care enough. So the public doesn't know a lot about mobile spyware companies. It also doesn't know about the ways governments interact with these companies. Thanks to new research from Lookout, we have more information on both. Two Lookout researchers found Android malware that eventually led them to a deep look at how exploit companies like NSO Group and FinFisher are selling their wares to various governments. The best part? The researchers found this information after a nation state hacked itself and dumped the information um, to the public internet. Greg, you wrote the story. Give us details on this, especially the last part. Yeah, the last part is just my favorite part of this story. When a government went unnamed and self-owned itself, like literally hacked itself (laughs) uh, with some exploits that it built itself and then dumped it out onto, uh, you know, the the public Internet. Um, This was part of a presentation at SmooCon last weekend. Mm -hmm. Uh, Andrew Blake and Michael Flossman, two lookout researchers, detailed uh, what they found. And what was really interesting was the fact that, okay, so this was tied to uh, a nation state. They didn't say what nation state it was tied to only because that they're still investigating a lot of what is going on and they didn't want to entirely blow their cover. So they did this research and found that this government had a $23 million budget for surveillanceware, spyware. The goal necessarily uh, outside of the technology wasn't discerned, but they wanted some way to eavesdrop on mobile communications. They reached out to a bunch of different companies like NSO Group, Finn Fisher, Wolf Intelligence, Hacking Team, Expert Team. Like if you know a, a, these spyware companies and the surveillance companies, you probably know a lot of the companies 
that were on this list because they were all on this list. Got it. What was even more interesting was they reached out to other companies that really don't have a lot to do with uh, mobile exploits. Like they reach out to Palantir. Palantir, for what I know, I mean, they, they like to stay quiet. But as far as I know, they just do a lot with uh, big data. They, they don't actually write their own malware. Right. Maybe that's a different business line. And I asked them about that. They were like, no, what we saw was what Palantir does a, a lot of data processing. Okay. So, but that's interesting in the fact that um, governments are looking at this like holistically. It's not enough to just go get the exploit, but they have to set up a program. It's how you're going to crunch that data, how you're going to process that data, where we're going to store that data. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the data storage for this particular government needs work since they dumped it out on the public internet. But um, it was interesting as well because those companies like NSO Group and Finn Fisher got back to them with some prices on some exploits. And it really shows what is capable when it comes to not just Android, but iOS and yeah. even desktop exploits because they were also looking for Windows exploits and Linux exploits as well. So it, uh, I ask everybody, go to cyberscoop.com, check out the story. It is really, really interesting from that standpoint. But it's also interesting from the standpoint of it looked more at just, which is a government IT problem overall, the buy versus build conversation. In that um, if you read FedScoop all the time, you hear agencies going, oh, should we build this internally or should we go out and just buy this from Amazon or Salesforce or whatever? That type of idea also funnels into governments that are looking to spy on people as well. There were a lot of conversations uh, around, well, okay, all of these companies are offering this and then they went, they took a step back and went, yeah, you know what, let's not buy anything, let's just build it ourselves. And they ended up building their own Android exploit and their own iOS exploit, which was really the the coda to the research. They were like, oh yeah, by the way, there are two new exploits floating around out there. We, we have a code name for an Android one and we have a code name for an iOS one. So it was really interesting that just the entire process of what goes into building uh, a mobile exploit. It's really fascinating research and I'm looking forward to the next part where uh, Andrew and Michael from Lookout are probably going to unveil who this nation state is. Which, oh, cool. Uh, yeah, which then looks into like the barriers for entry and how that barrier is dropping because I do not think that this is your high level nation state. Like I think this is a new or developing player in this space, especially because it's just a $23 million budget for this program. I feel like if it was a Five Eyes or a Russia or a China, It'd be much bigger. It would be an absolutely yeah. much bigger price tag. So I'm very interested to see how this all pans out in the next release. Interesting. So mathematics teams at IBM, Intel, Microsoft, and a range of startup firms are pushing ahead with research that can make it possible for technology companies to encrypt data while it's in use. This kind of security, known as homomorphic encryption, would mark a significant upgrade over current forms of encryption, which secure data while it's stored and while it's moving through a connection. Homomorphic encryption would better protect users who are using internet searches and accessing stored credit card numbers, as well as businesses that are sharing proprietary data as part of information sharing programs. This protocol was developed in part by NSA researchers looking for a way to quickly search or transmit classified material without sacrificing security. It's since become the focus of security-minded investors. Jen, uh, we know a little bit about this from talking to Ellison Ann Williams from Unveil. And we know this is a big thing, but are you surprised that Microsoft and Intel are on board too? I'm really not. I mean, it's just, it seems like this makes complete sense and it's it's sort of the direction we're going in. And 
you know, they'd kind of be left in the dust if they didn't jump on this. So I'm interested to hear how you deal with that. Like, let's say a company would come to you like Invail, and you have them in your portfolio, but, you know, you say, okay, so we have this cool product. And then you see somebody like a Microsoft or an IBM or an Intel, these behemoth companies going, yeah, well, they're, uh, you know, chomping at the bit to, to find a way to implement this into their systems too. What is your advice for a company like that when they're up against, you know, the, the behemoths of the tech industry with their technology? You know, it, it's interesting. I think a lot of companies we invest in, a lot of just companies out there, a lot of startups are going against these big behemoths. Um, and there's typically room for both. Um, and oftentimes we see these big guys looking just to spin in um, something startups are doing. So we see that a lot as well, um, that you'll see them look at these things and sometimes um, invest corporate dollars into them so they can use it too. Um, so I think it's, I mean, it's a good thing, right? The more secure everyone is, the better. So I'm all for it. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting in that. A startup like Invail is going to have these companies breathing down their neck because it's, I mean, I understand that that's just the way that business works, especially in the tech business, but it's funny to me that we're talking about a new encryption standard here because normally we're talking about a chat app or, <laughs> uh, you know, or uh, a, a workplace guess. tool or, yeah. or a productivity yeah, yeah. tool or something like that, not necessarily the bedrock of what could be security for, uh, you know, technology 10, 15, 20 years down the road. I mean, honestly, it's 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 really a positive thing, right, that we have more people thinking about it because we're not secure yet. So the Washington, D.C. area transit system, which is responsible for carrying lawmakers and federal officials to and from work, is one of the most sensitive transit systems in the country. Now that a Chinese government-owned company has emerged as a contender for the billion-dollar contract for Metro rail cars, lawmakers are worried that the project could be a conduit for espionage or hacking. In a recent letter to Metro chief executive, four senators from Maryland and Virginia expressed serious concerns about possible foreign bidding on the project. The senators want assurances that Metro will carefully scrutinize foreign-made components in the car. Metro has already amended a request for proposals on the project to include cybersecurity requirements. But now the pressure is on to do more. Greg, how serious do you think the start is? Uh, I don't think that this is, I, I, I think that this is totally misguided. And I'll tell you why. I, I don't, like, who cares if it's a Chinese company building the rail cars from an espionage standpoint? Because, okay, so let's talk about it in the fact that, let's say China's taken out of the contracting for these metro cars and the U.S. company is brought in or some company in Europe or whatever. It doesn't matter because once those cars are made, what's going to stop a Chinese agent from going into a rail car and, and planting a bug that's untraceable anyway? I mean, that's still espionage any, anyway. Right. But, you know, but that said, right, Senator Mark Warner is really, really smart um, when it comes to cybersecurity. So the fact that he's sort of on board on this, at least I think he is, right. two senators from Virginia, right. um, I, you know, there must be something, at least a little bit here, that we should be concerned about. I, uh, but, uh, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I, I mean, oh, so if it's not just bugging the cars themselves, you get into, oh, well, there is something in the supply chain or that they could find their way into the safety system in Well, in I imagine metro. it's the safety system, the ability to, I don't know, 
make the brakes fail. Right. I'm not saying that that is not a concern. I think that should always be a concern. I think that concern is going to be around regardless of whether it's China making these cars or not. Like, that's just the concern of our times. Like, whether or not it's it's built in China or Japan or, you know, down the road in, I don't know, somewhere in in the U.S., I just don't get a sense that the cybersecurity concerns are enough to throw off a, a contract on where this is built. Like, it, it just doesn't strike me as as the overarching problem because you're going to have these cars be hacked anyway if that's what China or any other country really wants to do. Like, once they're out and operating, right, I mean, they they're, they're connected. Into. They can absolutely be hacked into. So... I mean, I will say that, you know, just from an economic standpoint, right, I prefer that if we're going to spend a billion dollars of taxpayer dollars that we build it in the U.S. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like what I'm – that, and that is what I'm getting to uh, as well is that – is it really the cybersecurity concerns here that is driving everybody to, to – the driving these senators to look – at, at how this is, is built. Like, if it's just an economic... Like, I don't see why we're funneling this through cybersecurity if the, eco- if the economic argument is really what you want to make. Because I feel like that's a little bit of what's going on with Huawei and ZTE. Like, we want to, you know, sort of cut them out of the market. Which, look, if, if you want to do that, then that's, yeah. that's your prerogative. I, I don't think that funneling it through this cybersecurity scare way is is the way to go about it. Just just go out and say, uh, uh, okay, we want this made in the U.S. or we want this made with companies that we we have a better rapport with. That's fine. I just get the sense that throwing up cybersecurity concerns is a little misguided because there's always going to be cybersecurity concerns no matter where the car is built. Yeah, still pro, made in the U.S. So more than a month into the partial federal government shutdown, state and local governments, which rely on DHS for monitoring and intelligence about potential cyber attacks, are still getting those crucial updates. Yet with DHS currently underfunded, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is currently staffed by only unpaid and essential employees. So little is known about what parts of the cybersecurity mission are being carried out and whether that is going to trickle down to the state and local offices. Uh, we don't know which cybersecurity activities are being conducted during the shutdown, said Suzanne Spaulding, a Homeland Security Advisor for the Center of Strategic and International Studies, and a former DHS cybersecurity official, said on Tuesday. Spaulding listed several functions that she believes are not being addressed currently, including work on election security and critical infrastructure. Jen, this is really interesting to me because now I feel like we're getting into the real discussion about how the government shutdown weighs on cybersecurity as a whole across well, the government. It, yes, and also, um, you know, even talking about these unpaid essential employees, um, you know, obviously I've, I've got friends that fall into that category and they are literally going into work and reading a book because they're not allowed to work on stuff too, right? So it's, that's interesting too. So yeah, I think it's going to trickle down and, and, you know, it needs to open back up and yeah, it's I time mean, for our senators and, and congressmen and president to get to work. And, and that's the thing is on the state and local level where, you know, it's supposed to be just business as usual where everything right. is fine. I mean, states still depend on the, the, federal, the, funding. the federal funding. Yep. Or, well, not even just It's not even just the funding. It's the actual programs, like the actual operational programs. 
We talked a lot about the election security scans that uh, DHS's NCATS is doing. Well, just because we're not gearing up for an election doesn't mean that those scans aren't happening. Like they don't, there's there's not like a set date like, oh, okay, we're six months out, we're gonna start those election scans right. again. Yeah. They're continuous and they're supposed to be happening all the time. So yes, while we're not necessarily watching federal networks and, and we could talk about the DNS thing, obviously that we talked about at the top of the show, but th- like this is another big, whole. It's, okay, well, there's election security systems that aren't being scanned and aren't being watched. Interesting. Is that not, like, if you're you're an adversary, this is going to be, it's got to be a goldmine. The defenses are down. Like, we talk about the, we've talked about the shutdown for so long, obviously, as it's gone on and it affects cybersecurity and how it's affecting cybersecurity currently, Mm -hmm. where I really think that we're going to see things is when everybody gets back to work and you start to pour over your logs and you start to look at what exactly has gone on since all those essential employees couldn't touch their programs. Like, I'm really scared. Like, we're going to be bombed with news. Like, it's just going to be tons of news. Like, there's there's stuff that has happened that we don't know yet that everybody's going to go, like this is what we shut down the government for, like for us to be hacked in A, B, and C ways. Like, I I just have a feeling that it's going to be really, really bad cybersecurity-wise once things start to open up. I agree with you. So if you're a CISO, the best place to meet your peers may not be the big events in Vegas, San Francisco, or traveling roadshow coming through your town. It may be the restaurant around the corner. Corporate security executives are beginning to favor exclusive invite-only meetings where they trade ideas and other security bosses on how to protect business secrets, mainly as a way to fight the fatigue that comes out of the onslaught of sales pitches. While it's not new for CISOs to compare notes with their counterparts in other companies, the number of invite-only sessions is growing as the pressure on executives grows to get things right, said Dave Tyson, former CISO at SC Johnson. We all have a pool of people, including salespeople and consulting people that we trust, he said. Um, So Greg, looks like the vendors are gonna get a cold shoulder here. Yeah, it looks like uh, CISOs are just finding a way around the vendors. I mean, I'm sure we talk to CISOs all the time, and they talk about just the onslaught of sales pitches that they get. Um, why would you not want to just be like, okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go over here in this room, and you salesman from McAfee, CrowdStrike, FireEye, Silence, Carbon Black, whatever, like take a five. Yeah. Like, go, go do a lap. Go, go do some paperwork. Or something like I, I'm, I'm going to go talk to my people, and I'm going to go figure out where I need to go because, I mean, that that I think that's just the nature of the business, especially with how much uh, they get. I mean, think about the trade show floor at RSA or or Black Hat so or big. something like that. Yeah, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. So. Even if you wanted to take vendors at face value, there's just way too much information out there to process. So I, it just seems like it would be common sense to be like, hey, guy in that business over there down the street that also does cybersecurity, let's go grab a beer and let's go talk about our problems and, and strategies and the way that we do things. And maybe we can bounce ideas off of each other that can help me make the right purchase because... Again, you can buy all of these tools to, that keeps you off the front page of the of websites like ours, and you can do all of these things that you know help the the board realize what you're doing. But at the same time, if you buy the wrong tool or if you buy something that has a contract and that contract 
then you have enough stress from your CFO going, why are we spending yeah. eight figures on cybersecurity with these? Like, there's also that. I mean, obviously, that's not as big of a deal as, no, we need to stay protected. But that's an added stress thing when you yeah. have you have sales vendors that are breathing down your neck, but then you have a CFO that's breathing down your neck because they're looking at a, a sheet and going, you don't need all of this. But it's like, okay, well, maybe I do because I need to protect themselves. Like, that's a lot. That's a lot to deal with. So I totally understand the need to tell everybody to clear out. I'm, I'm going to go call that guy down the street. Yeah. I'm going to go call that girl across across the way, and we're all going to get together. We're going to have a dinner, and we're going to try to figure out notes. Yeah, I mean, we know it's it, – you certainly have been happening in the financial sector um, – I use a, a CISO at a, at a big bank to do diligence sometimes, and um, he references all the time the meeting he just had with, you know, XYZ. Um, you know, the CISO of, of Norfolk Grumman certainly has mentioned to me um, meeting with other big system integrators as a group, and and then there's a cyber or a CISO group um, here in the D.C. area um, that has been kind enough to invite me on occasion, um, and they do roundtables quarterly, and, you know, once a year they'll actually bring in vendors, they'll pick some like startups have been getting traction and have them sort of pitch to everybody. Um, but then not let those um, CEOs like sort of stick around and like do sales pitches, right? They just kind of. It only right seems smart. Out. It yeah. only seems smart. And we honestly, as a, a company, we have uh, an events wing that does something like this too. We do quarterly round tables. Yeah. For CISOs all the time. Um, some of them are government focused. Some of them are more commercially focused, but the ones that I have been in and actually moderated, they've been really, really interesting and they've been really, really enlightening. Like I can remember some where some, it really talked more about the workforce and a bunch of CISOs uh, talked to some people from OPM and they were talking about their uh, challenges with the workforce. And the representative from OPM turned around and was like, guys, I thought we took care of this. Like we have this program and that program and, and, and this way to, to find people and, yeah. and so this sort of fast tracking. And it was interesting because these CISOs have so much else going on that they were like, I didn't know that we could do that. Oh, I didn't know that we could do that. Oh, wait, that actually did happen. And it was enlightening to see a convergence of the minds to go, well, everybody's so bogged down in what they have to do. And you know, you think that these programs are being communicated in the right way. And it turns out they aren't. And the only way that they ever get communicated is by getting in a room and talking about it and, and figuring out that way. That's and that's one of the most and important so things to do. I yeah. totally get the vision here. Uh, and I hope that more of these things, um, you know, continue because, hey, any piece of good advice is definitely something needed in this line of work. Yeah. Hey, before we get on to the interview, I um, just want to give a shout out to some of our past podcast guests. Her name's Cyber Stars this week, Paul Batista from Polarity, Great Alley from Ascendo, Rangula, um, former Tenable founder. Joe Sanders from RunSafe, John Zupak from ThreatQuestion, there's a long list, John Prisco from Quantum Exchange, Alison Ann Williams from Envale, Vince Chrysler from Darkcube, and Stephen Chen from PFP, Dimitri Jane from Virgil, and finally Terry Dunlap from Reform Labs. We're shouting them out. What did they? They won a Cyberstar Award um, earlier this week. I did That's too, awesome. so that may not say very much for them, but you know. <laughs> hey, shout out to those companies that are getting those awards. Uh, yeah. It's definitely, I, th that list, it, it, it basically sounds like our guests, which they, is no, awesome. No, it was that, um, yeah, those are all guests of ours and a lot of them. That's awesome that they're being recognized for the work that they do. I mean, you can go back and listen to our interviews. Uh, just a ton of really 
inspiring stuff coming out of these companies. So I'm glad that other people are starting to recognize them and they're starting to get awarded for it. Absolutely. So now to our interview with Jonathan. And yes, it is Jonathan, despite the fact that his name starts with why my apologies in prior episodes, I think I've actually called him Jonathan ah, the, yeah. with the soft J, like I'm wrong Burgundy. So no, in <laughs> fact, it is Jonathan. But Jonathan is, you know, a world-renowned expert when it comes to Magecart. We get into what he's seen, what he has seen, how things are progressing, and how enterprises are working with him once he contacts them and says, "Hey, you got this Magecart on your system. Let's try to get it off. Check it out." All right, joining us right now is Jonathan Kleinsma, the Threat Research Lead for Risk IQ and the world's foremost Magecart expert. So, Jonathan, I uh, really appreciate you coming aboard uh, to talk about this threat. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. So, first off, let's talk about how you first discovered this group. I mean, this group has not been around that long, but they've certainly made a name for themselves. So, I'm wondering how you first came about this group. So uh, it mostly comes from what we do um, within RiskIQ. So we, we have a large focus just on the web, and we do a lot of web crawling, and that's basically where all our focus goes. Um, we also look at things like mobile, but our main focus is anything on the web. Now we have our, you know, our normal data sets like DNS and OS, which is stuff everybody looks at, but we have our crawl data, which is, um, basically us crawling the web for, I don't know, close to 10 years, about 2 billion pages a day. So we build up a lot of history over that time. Um, and we have our, you know, internal research team. And our thing is basically, you know, help amend, you know, product features, products, but it's also to just get an idea of what's going around. Um, so it's, it's a couple of years back, uh, it was actually 2015, uh, when our researchers were just we're going around looking at a whole bunch of different things and somebody noticed that there was these sort of JavaScript injections on websites. Um, and they were looking at it and it's like, well, it's trying to get to form data, like payment form data. It's, it's kind of interesting. Um, so dug a little back in time, um, like half 2014, we actually got to, uh, we got to the start. Um, we kept documenting this for a while. We figured out kind of like grouping, because um, card is, is kind of like you have to term APT1 to APT, I don't know how many, or FIN1 to FIN30. Um, for us, it just means MageCard is pay, or skimming, web skimming for payment data. So um, we've been digging in the data. We've been defining the different track groups that are there. Um, we, we actually were publishing about this for a while, uh, starting in 2016, you know, decided just start detailing all of this, start explaining all of this. It wasn't until um, last year, basically 2018, when there were a couple of pretty pretty big breaches and nobody really had exact details on it, but we okay. knew what had happened. So the list of organizations that have been hit have been sort of all over the map. What can you discern from the targets that leads you to figure out what these groups look for when they attack? So um, it, it kind of depends per group. So we have different ways of profiling them. It goes from anything from like infrastructure to ways to actually like skimming what the skimmer looks like. Um, and we define profiles out of it. So there's there's one group, which we call group five or Magecart group five. And their thing is to go after small companies, but have a big impact. They go after the supply chain of websites. That's sort of their target field. And 
their concept behind it is I compromise one organization or one website as these guys also run their own websites um, and I get like thousands and thousands of victims because my you know malicious code will be on a thousand websites instead of compromising this one e-commerce store and then you know having one store where you're skimming these guys do a couple thousand at a time now there's another group um, we call them Mace Card Group 6 that's the guys from British Airways they have a completely different take um, they will target a specific organization they will breach an organization take your time you know internally to figure out how does this network work where is payment process all of that um, and they do multiple things in tandem web skimming isn't their main thing they will do web, web skimming um, but they have their site thing as well where they just go after payment data that's locally stored so you hit upon something that we wanted to highlight the number of groups that you have found using Magecart. The number of groups have been growing. I remember at one time Risk IQ put out a report that it was six. And then recently, I think that we've gotten up to 12 or 13. So what can you tell us about that? And if you have seen any unique identifiers among the various groups and not just the ones you mentioned, but even, you know, among the 12 or 13 that you have highlighted. So um, our main thing is detecting this. That's the main thing. Now, sometimes there are really exact artifacts that tell us which group it is because they have their own way of skimming because um, they, they built our own skimmer. Group six, you know, they built their own skimmer. Group seven, um, same skimmer, but they have a different concept of how they actually obtain their payment data. When they're exfiltrating, they will use different compromised sites, kind of like proxies. Uh, that's completely different from uh, what group, like group 12, for example, does. Group 12 is one we documented recently on. Um, they go after organizations in Europe, see, which is kind of interesting. We hadn't seen that before. They, um, when they're skimming, they have to figure out what payment page they're on, and they always have sort of generic keywords for it. But this is the only group that actually uses keywords for like German and, and French. So it's like we have a lot of different groups. We'll do attribution um, later on. It's it's not our focus. Um, some stuff we automatically are able to cluster and say this is like one thing. Um, the problem now is since it's become so big, so popular, it's not um, one group. Obviously, we documented multiple, but there's like seven individual sort of kits you can buy, um, like source code bases you can buy to do the skimming. It's available for like a hundred bucks to a couple thousand, uh, depending on the quality you want. So there's you know, more will come, and there's way more than we publicly stated. Um, till now, uh, we will, you know, we document out the big stuff, uh, the big breaches, uh, but our main focus is our own customers. So other than the fact that these groups are financially motivated, have you seen any patterns of behavior that are interesting or unique? Is there an overreaching, like, code author that has set up customer service like we've seen in other criminal groups? Um, for some, yeah. There's, there's sort of a shift in, in, in how they were originally selling. Uh, in the beginning, they just sell off the code base. Uh, and then others found that if they do that, a lot of people get access to it, you know, stuff gets leaked if you sell it at a low price to too many people. So some people just raise the price, which makes it more exclusive in itself, but others actually um, do a percentage cut. So the kit is free as long as they get 50% of like the cards you skim and you need to skim at least like 100 per week at a minimum or 200. There's like changes. Now in the same way, there's different groups and they sell at different places. As certain groups have are well, they are really known. If Group Six announces to their sort of card selling broker that they're coming up with a new data dump, 
everybody like in that sort of economy is hyped up about it because they are known for quality and if you get their stuff it's good while other groups have a harder time selling it off because they're not that known in the underground so there's a whole economy going around there so on the company side or companies that are affected by this how are you reaching out to those impacted i'm interested to hear what the outreach has been like especially since a lot of these intrusions have come from code being inserted in third-party platforms because you know, Ticketmaster or Newegg, uh, you know, they all rely on the e-commerce infrastructure that has been set up. So I'm wondering how you've seen these companies communicate and how the third-party platforms have reacted to this. So we had this whole boom of everybody adding like analytics to their website. So while we have adapted to that with app blockers and all that kind of stuff, um, this sort of attack, while it's not new, it's new for like the e-commerce space in this way. So large companies um, like organizations like Ticketmaster uh, and those, um, they will respond to it because they have like they have their internal policies, right? They have security teams, they have everything in place. This is just something that is very unexpected, uh, unexpected for them because you know it's outside of their reach, kind of. Um, now these small companies that that do get compromised and that are abused for this. Um, they have absolutely nothing to do with security. Their business, like we have never seen a business related analytics provider. So they have a really hard time dealing with this. And um, the responses to us um, have been really, really bad. Some of us say we are claiming that they did something, which is not true. They are a victim just as much as the e-commerce site that's affected by them and the guy whose card is being skimmed. So it's been really hard. Some of them react really badly. Some of them just say, no, it's not true. Um, it, it's, uh, it's been all over the place. We've only had one really, really good response of one company that immediately said, thank you, we're gonna investigate, we'll shut it down for now, um, and we'll dig into it. So it's just very new for all the players on the table. I was gonna say, that's really interesting to me that you said that it's you know so bad and so all over the map without you know identifying some customer or some company that you've done outreach to. Can you give us any more details on what exactly has gone into it that has made it so bad? I, I'm really intrigued to hear about uh, uh, this reaction because I feel like, you know, this is not going away. This crew's going to be around for a while. So a lot of companies are going to need to know what's the best way to react to news like this. Well, the, the one thing they always, which is sort of the first response is, just no, um, and it's mostly because <laughs> of knowledge they don't have. Okay, um, and that's for those third parties. That's just they don't get it. So we're sort of in the counseling space now. What we do is we reach out and try to like bear the victim as much as everybody who's affected by this. Um, it's not just the fact that there's bad script on your site or your surface. It's the fact that somebody has been inside your surface. So it's not just I'll just you know put a clean version of the script up there. No, 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 you need to figure out, you know, what happened, how did they get there? Are they still there? Because otherwise you can clean it up as many times as you want, you're still gonna have a problem. Now the bigger players, so the companies that get affected by this um, on the e-commerce level, um, their response is obviously just by initially just shutting down the third party as a whole. Um, they have a lot of liability because their customers were affected by this. so. Um, it's partially them having to make a public statement, having to figure out how, you know, what kind of box does this fit? How can we first like explain how it happened and we didn't know, or if we did know why we didn't react fast enough. Um, there's a whole lot to it. And if you go into like Europe, it's an even bigger thing with GDPR and all of that. Okay. So 
it's yeah, it's just it's very hard and like some people are like for example, Ticketmaster has been blamed. Everybody's putting blame on them. I personally put blame on a company that you know was the actual cause because this is not something like Ticketmaster had no control over this company. Should they have maybe put things up differently? Um, they're not alone on having analytics and all of that everywhere. It's you know, it's we had like I said, we had this boom of let's put analytics on everything, let's put ads everywhere. Now we need to sort of scale it down and start thinking about the reach um, of this. We we had some stuff a while back about these companies that do like a live recording of your website, so you can see what users did and like why they didn't go through to check out all of that, and those ended up recording like credit card numbers and all of that. Yikes! It's, you know, same same thing. It's just you know different scale, different process. Um, but the thing is, on the web, or at least on websites, when you do payments, there is no um, sensitivity level of the data that's being put on there. The same script that makes your image rotate or whatever is the script that's validating credit numbers to tell them that they typed in their card number correctly or that it's a Visa instead of a MasterCard. So there are some changes on all sides, companies, the third parties, but I think also we need to look at how we're doing online payments because um, it's just so easy to get to this data and abuse this data. Have you come across any um, particular major car incident that's been, you know, uniquely egregious? Um, something other than just coming back to the same site again? Anything over the top? Sorry, what do you mean? Have you seen any particular major car incident that's been just particularly egregious or persistent? I know a lot of the times you'll you've seen reports where you'll find the code and the company will make changes to their payment platforms, but then the attackers will come in and make changes on top of that. So I didn't know if there was anything beyond that that you've seen that they've been persistent or they've stuck around for four or five months before a company has really fully eradicated uh, the threat of having them on their system. So um, in terms of like lengths, um, third parties, the average is on a month or more. We've only had one third party, which is the only one that responded really well to us, which was shopper approved. It took it two days for them to clean up. Others have had it for months and would not have known unless we told them. That's, that's kind of the problem. Now in terms of like being persistent and adapting, we've had an incident where a group um, maintain persistent access and eventually actually started building out a new type of skimmer and using this one e-commerce site as sort of a development platform. That has happened. Um, not all of them are this like aggressive. A lot of them are just automated. So they don't really look at the websites they're compromising. They're just scanning, exploiting and dumping in the skimmer. Um, so if somebody cleans it up but doesn't update, he will get reinfected within like days. And that continuously happens with people cleaning up, reinfected, cleaning up, reinfected. All right, Jonathan, so to end our interviews, we always end on a random question. And so for you this week, in one sentence, how would you sum up the internet? Uh, a pretty bad place with some good sides to it. <laughs> I, I, I will have to agree with you on that, definitely. Uh, Jonathan, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, look forward to more research and um, you know, you're the expert on this, so I imagine that we'll be talking to you again soon. Yeah, well, I hope not, but I think so. so. <laughs> right. Until then. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks again to Jonathan for giving us all the insight he's got on Magecart. I'm sure we'll be hearing from him again soon. 
That's it, and that's all, everyone. Talk to you next week. As always, stay curious. Stay curious.